Welcome to the Sharid Sedek Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Here you'll find a live recording of just about every sermon, Devar Torah, teaching, or story from our Arab Shabbat and High Holy Day services. We know that you wish you could be with us more often, and we understand life getting in the way is not a bad thing. To live Jewishly is to understand that just as important as it is that Judaism happens in the synagogue, it's even more important to live Jewishly in your home and on your way. So here we are, in your home, on your way, maybe even on your morning run. If you ever have any questions or want to continue the discussion, let one of us know, and make sure you check out our live stream and YouTube channel for more ways that Sharit Zedek is available to you on demand. Keep an eye on your shofar and email so that when you're able, you can be with us as well. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Okay, I have to start with a question. How many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution? Go ahead, hands up. Now, how many of you keep your hands up if you have ever broken a New Year's resolution? We are 10 days now into 20, hands down, you can put your hands down. I won't ask you how long it took. Because uh, I don't want to share how, okay. Uh, we are now 10 days into 2020. Statistically, a good percentage of resolutions have already fallen by the wayside. Only about half of New Year's resolutions last more than a month. And just one in five are successful in the long term. Not one in five people, one in five resolutions Why? Because change is hard. We return for the final time this week to our favorite biblical split personality, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. He was born, the Torah tells us, clinging to the heel of his twin brother, and so he was named Heel, or Yaakov. As a heel is crooked, so was he. He swindled his brother out of his birthright. He refused to stand up to his mother's manipulations, instead bending to her will and deceiving his father, Isaac. Fleeing in fear and shame, he became an indentured servant of sorts to his uncle Laban. They took turns plotting and scheming against one another until finally Jacob came out on top. And he made out, so to speak, like a bandit. With a huge household under his possession, massive flocks and herds, riches and 12 sons, a daughter, wives and handmaids, on paper, he was a great success. Or maybe I should say on parchment. It's called a rabbi joke. (laughs) On parchment. Well, It is at that point in his life that the, I just heard somebody explain, okay. It is at that point in his life that Jacob actually has something of a crisis of conscience. He encounters God in some kind of strange event and he gives up his devious ways, mostly. He's renamed from Jacob to Israel. 
and his sons and their descendants become known as the children of Israel, B'nai Yisrael, the Israelites, us. It's not that unusual for a biblical character to change their name to reflect a new stage in their life. There are over a dozen biblical figures who change their name at one point or another, uh, whether it's Abraham and Sarah, formerly Avram and Sarai, to the much less famous Tzidkiyahu, formerly Matanya. There will be a test later. However, Israel, there will not be a test later. However, Israel is the only one who is regularly referred to both names even after he changes. He's alternately called by Jacob and Israel frequently even in the same verse. Now, setting aside documentary hypothesis theories of multiple authorship, there is a traditional explanation for this double naming. And the reason is surprisingly timeless. Why? Because change is hard. Jacob, the heel, strived with God, or at least strived to be the kind of person who could strive with God. That's what Israel, Yisrael, means. However, try as he might, Jacob still sometimes found himself slipping back into his old habits because change is hard. It's hard to make it last, and meaningful changes take continual effort, vigilance, and evaluation. David Brooks, author of the best-selling book, The Road to Character, writes that All good people are focused on developing virtues in their lives. He recognizes that the development of any virtue takes a lot of work. However, there are plenty of tools at our disposal to gradually build new habits, strengthen them, and hold ourselves accountable to avoid the pitfalls of backsliding. If, for example, your New Year's resolution is to exercise more, which is the most common New Year's resolution, You are more likely to succeed if you find an activity that you enjoy, sign up for an organized class, or exercise and or exercise with a friend or a partner. Changes are, chances are, you've heard some version of this before. Yeah? The same types of rules go for being more fiscally responsible, changing eating habits, being more punctual, and so on. However, The Road to Character is not a book about how to keep your New Year's resolutions, and neither is the story of Jacob. They are both about how to choose what virtues you wish to develop in the first place. You see, Jacob did not suffer from a lack of success. Indeed, he succeeded tremendously at whatever he set his mind to, sometimes maybe even too well. He was so single-minded in achieving his goals that he often didn't acknowledge the terrible harm he left in the wake of his rampant success, not only to others, but often to himself as well. Yes, he looked good on parchment, but at what cost? This is what David Brooks calls resume virtues. 
They're the kind of virtues that look good on resumes. Drive, discipline, productivity, efficacy, efficiency, accomplishment. These are the type of virtues that the majority of people, certainly Americans, tend to chase. Jacob mastered them all. He had his resume in order. However, there is a second category of virtues, which Brooks calls eulogy virtues. As opposed to what looks good on a resume, these are the virtues that people will remember you for at the end of your life. They are quite literally your legacy. When people examine the sum of your life, they will not remember how often you exercised or how you were very efficient with money. They will not beam with pride at how many flocks of sheep you accumulated. They will, however, care that you were kind, wise, passionate, fair. They will care that you made them feel that they were important to you. Those are the so-called eulogy virtues. Some of the key virtues that Brooks identified were counterintuitive. Humility, sure, but also self-defeat, dependency, the call within the call and conscience. Brooks summarized them as follows. The humility shift. We live in the culture of the big me, the meritocracy wants you to promote yourself. Social media wants you to broadcast a highlight reel of your life. Your parents and teachers were always telling you how wonderful you were. But all the people I've ever deeply admired are profoundly honest about their own weaknesses. They have identified their core sin, whether it is selfishness, the desperate need for approval, cowardice, hard-heartedness, or whatever. They have traced how that core sin leads to the behavior that makes them feel ashamed. They have achieved a profound humility, which has best been defined as an intense self-awareness from a position of other-centeredness. Self-defeat. External success is achieved through competition with others, but character is built during the confrontation of your own weakness. Dwight Eisenhower, for example, realized early on that his core sin was his temper. He developed a moderate, cheerful exterior because he knew that he needed to project optimism and confidence to lead. He did silly things to tame his anger. He took the names of people he hated and wrote them down on slips of paper and then tore them up and threw them in the garbage. Over a lifetime of self-confrontation, he developed a mature temperament. He made himself strong in his weakest places. Dependency. Many people give away the book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, as a graduation gift. This book suggests that life is an autonomous journey. We master certain skills and experience adventures and certain challenges on our way to individual success. This individualist worldview suggests that character is this little iron figure of willpower inside, but people on the road to character understand that no person can achieve self-mastery on their own. Individual will, reason, and compassion are not strong enough to consistently defeat selfishness, pride, 
and self-deception. We all need redemptive assistance from outside. People on this road see life as a process of commitment-making. Character is defined by how deeply rooted you are. Have you developed deep connections that hold you up in times of challenge and push you toward the good? In the realm of the intellect, a person of character has achieved a settled philosophy about fundamental things. In the realm of emotion, she's embittered, embedded in a web of unconditional love. In the realm of action, she's committed to tasks that can't be completed in a single lifetime. Jacob experienced these events and these virtues in his lifetime. He practiced humility and self-defeat. He learned to depend on others and let others depend on him. As he reaches the end of his life in the verses of Torah this week, he has not perfected that change. No, there was always a struggle within him, a struggle toward building a life worthy of a great eulogy, not just a great resume. He had successes and backsliding, but he never gave up the struggle, and he inspires us to do the same. So, I ask again, what is your New Year's resolution? Be sure that the resolutions you choose will really and truly help you live a more worthy life, not just look good on parchment. Shabbat Shalom.